0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on today's episode, lifting the lid on couples therapy. What really happens behind closed doors? Plus, the questions you should ask your partner before you tie the knot with not one but two experts live in the studio. We were talking lung health and the balloon test that could be quite humbling, meeting the banker turned farmer and it's flu season. What do you need to know about protecting yourself and treating yourself? We are lifting the lid on couples therapy now. I'm not going to lie, I've been really looking forward to this. And I find it really fascinating that you need to, I don't know, need to do a test before you drive, you know, before you have a job, you have an interviewer to get married. Well, there's not that much in place. And I think some of us actively avoid some of the big questions that could ultimately future-proof our relationship about our values, our goals, our finances, our desire to have children. So I'd love to know from you this afternoon, what do you wish you knew about your partner before you married them. Let me know. 4001. You've got the WhatsApp. zero four eight seven one double five double zero. Joining us, we've got not one, but two clinical psychologists from Sage Clinic. We've got Charlotte and Anna in the studio. Um, and I don't say this lightly, ladies. Thank you for your time. Um, because I get the impression that many couples therapists, marriage counsellors are pretty busy right now. Charlotte, is that the case for you guys? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Right. So I... I, I I understand um, it's like the proverbial um, rocking horse poo right now. Very hard to get an appointment with a marriage counsellor in Dubai. Um, Anna, tell us a little bit about some of the common issues that are coming into clinic. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the patterns you've noticed?
2: Okay, yeah, definitely. So I think um, the main issue is like the couples come when sometimes it's too late. Ah. Uh, so many issues obviously have been uh, there for a while and they start uh, with communication issues because, uh, you know, communications, conflict resolution, uh, you know, uh, as well, you know, individual Growth and stages in life. Well, maybe there's
1: an argument for having individual counselling before you come in as a couple. How, how common is that, Charlotte? And how, how do you kind of ascertain with someone that maybe they need to work on themselves before you present both of you?
3: Mm. it's a really uh, good and important question and I suppose as part of our assessment we're exploring that with both parties in the couple and if some of the difficulties that they're experiencing in the relationship maybe date back to childhood or earlier parts of their life which we feel are kind of flaring up and causing difficulty in the relationship then at that point we probably would recommend that they have individual therapy to address some of the kind of wounds from the past I guess that are flaring up now and um, sometimes we do that alongside couple therapy or maybe we'd say you know what go and have some individual therapy first and then come back to us. With someone different? Yes yeah we would recommend
1: that they see someone different for that. Interesting and can I ask then how common is it for a couple to come and see a couple's therapist or counsellor before they get to a crisis point, do you have many couples coming to see you who are just maintaining a good relationship?
2: Any? <laughs> no. No, and unfortunately, this is why when they come, sometimes it's definitely more difficult, and sometimes uh, there is no way back. You know, so we always recommend uh, to to to. to to, to count on psychologists and the specialists to to learn exactly some time basics like uh, communication, conflict resolution, understanding oneself, and particularly all the these individual challenges uh, we face when we when there are issues at work. I mean, we need to, I mean, ideally we will get into a partnership knowing about all those topics, but mm-hmm. indeed we, we just come and we don't see many important aspects that are going to influence in directly our relationship over the time i mean we are no we're talking about ideally long term uh, i mean long term life so we're not so
1: we're not seeing people being proactive and saying you know before we get married let's get on the same page with someone expert in the room or even when things are good and i i say this because it wouldn't occur to me and um, you know to be like oh let's go and maintain our great relationship let's go and spend money you know it it just wouldn't but presumably some, there are some questions we can be addressing now and some even some tools and strategies in healthy relationships that can kind of future proof those relationships. It's really interesting to, to hear from people about what they wish they knew about their partners before they got married. One saying, I wish I knew how much time he spends in his head by himself when things get tough. Um, I had a lot of people on social media talking about um, how crazy his mother is, or <laughs> I wish I knew more about his family. So we're going to be talking next about some of the things you should be addressing before you tie the knot. Um, if you've got any questions, uh, we have got from Sage Clinics with us today, Dr. Charlotte Cousins and Anna Maria Aranero here, clinical psychologists on hand to help. Um, we're going to be t- addressing your questions too. We've had a number asking, is couples therapy for me. We're trying to get an understanding of what happens in that room which we're going to be addressing next. When we're talking about booking in for a session what actually happens? We are demystifying it here on Dubai i103.8.
3: This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer
1: on Dubai i103.8
0: With King's College Hospital London in Dubai bringing the best of British healthcare to the UAE.
1: It's Afternoons with me Helen Farmer and we are lifting the lid on couples therapy. Joining us from Sage Clinics this afternoon, Dr. Charlotte Cousins and Anna Maria Aranero. And it's really fascinating to hear what's coming in on the text line on this topic. I feel like, okay, so confession. Um, When I got engaged, my mum said to me, don't ever be afraid to get therapy as a couple. Me and your dad did years ago. And I was like, Babs and Dave had marriage counselling, but they're the happiest couple I've ever known. Um, And I thought that was really a lovely thing thing to say, actually, because mm-hmm. it kind of normalized it from from my mum's side. And I think a big barrier for a lot of people is one, stigma. Two, is just not knowing what happens in couples therapy. So Dr. Charlotte Cousins, can you, I guess, lift the lid, open the door? And I think a big reason why Esther Perel's podcast on this topic where we effectively eavesdrop on people's therapy has been really fascinating. But for anyone that hasn't heard that or doesn't know about what it can address and how can you explain a little bit more mm, yeah of course gladly um
3: so we start with an assessment and what we mean by that is really it's just a space uh, to get, all get to know each other make sure that we feel comfortable with each other because it's really important that both parties in the couple feel as though it's a good fit and as though that therapist is the right person for them so we start by taking like personal histories for both members of the couple so we look at their relationship history kind of their own childhood their um their parents relationship and any factors that we feel could be influencing their experience of the relationship now then we look back so we don't just want to focus on the problems and what's going wrong we want to take a a history of that couple's relationship really focus on the good times and all of the strengths in the relationship because they're the things that we're going to be using as our anchors and that we're going to build upon to help get them through the more tricky times Mm then we look at why they're here, we identify some kind of clear goals, what is it that they're both wanting to get from the sessions, and then we really think together, okay, in order to achieve X, Y, and Z, what needs to happen, what needs to be different, and then we make a plan together about how we're going to get them there. (laughs) And timelines, do you ever put those in place? Yeah, I think it's really important to have um, clear timelines and clear expectations. Some people are really quite scared and are really ambivalent. So we agree to just do a few sessions at a time. Mm -hmm. We have to be realistic that we can't make major changes in two or three sessions. But if someone feels scared about the prospect of long-term therapy, we kind of might say, OK, let's think really realistically about what we could expect to see happening within six sessions. Let's really focus on that, see where we're at
1: in six sessions, and then go from there. And we just take it in stages. We've had a number of messages asking questions and offering offering their experiences as well. Now, you can be completely anonymous, no name saying we found couples counseling hideous and now mm-hmm. divorcing maybe if we tried six months earlier it would have been better but timing was so important i also felt like my soon-to-be ex-wife and the therapist were ganging up on me so can i ask you that dr charlotte you know in terms of how do you uh, maintain impartiality and and fairness how does that work
3: because mm, of course that's yeah that's so important. So I think as as a therapist we have to be really really aware of that kind of in the room. So we have to be kind of monitoring ourselves in the room, making sure in the moment that we're staying kind of impartial and we're not being drawn kind of uh into kind of siding so to speak mm-hmm. with one party. And then as as therapists we all have what we call clinical supervision where we go and we kind of discuss um each each case uh with uh, a colleague with a supervisor and it's exactly things like impartiality that we'd be discussing to make sure that we are uh, maintaining impartiality.
1: I've had a number of questions Anna and maybe you can help with this one saying what happens when only one partner wants to do counselling how so I think that's raised a really interesting point you know and what, what happens when one partner is reluctant or resistant in attending couples therapy you know what advice can you offer couples facing that dilemma?
2: So obviously the idea is to to get to know and to be able to explore uh, w- which kind of uh, beliefs are there that are stopping me to to go. Whether it's fear, they are going. You no, know, sometimes they're going to get to know something. I even myself. M- doesn't know Um, I don't know Um, so it's it's a kind of what is stopping you which kind of belief what What do you think you're going to find there what if it's just a flat no
1: it's like do you know what Um, I don't think that's for me I think it's a bunch of you know woo woo nonsense if you want to go and get couples counselling go but I'm not going to go how can you approach someone who's just completely stonewalling the issue
2: so obviously it would depend but I mean the idea is like if you you don't want to you don't believe at least uh, come to come with me maybe we you know you're with me I mean, you, we're talk, we're going to talk about the, uh, obviously our relationship. Uh, maybe you you do that for me in a way because I mean, the idea is like. I think uh, what we what we do well is once you come to therapy, you understand, you, you break a, a lot of uh, barriers to that. And then you, you it's a space, obviously, where you feel safe and it's a space just for you and for your partner you know, or, or, the, or the couple's uh, relationship. So I think it's important just to experience and, and then to be able to... I guess which leads so. me to ask
1: Dr. Charlotte Cousins, do, in couples therapy, do both... Both people need to want to make that marriage work.
3: Mm, Absolutely. And that's a really important part, I guess, of the assessment, which I should have said um, earlier, is I guess we have to work out yeah, why they're coming, what they're wanting to get out of it. If one person's already got one foot out the door Mm -hmm. and is ready for the relationship to end, but the other desperately wants it to work, therapy can't fix that. They do need to both be on the same page and want the same
1: thing. Um, Can I ask you then, in cases where couples therapy might not be successful, what are some of the factors that can contribute to that, to ineffectiveness? And when might a therapist recommend alternative approaches or interventions?
3: Hmm. I guess it kind of depends what we mean by successful as well, because I guess most people would think uh, a marriage or a relationship ending means that it hasn't been successful. But actually maybe really sadly for some people maybe that really is the right decision I thank
1: you for saying that because i feel like a lot of people think about marriage as ending being a failure mm. that that relationship is a failure and that's absolutely not the case you mm. know we think about children and experiences and travels and love that's being shared and sometimes it does just come to an end so maybe it's a case of the goal is we're not going to stay together but hopefully we won't hate each other during the process exactly does that make does that make sense okay here's a tricky one <clears throat> to both of you, Anna, would you ever advise someone to leave their partner in, in marriage?
2: Never. I mean, never. We basically, as psychologists, we, we we are not an authority to say. so I mean, at all, it's the person or both of them who are going to decide whether to continue or not. But we work basically on all those aspects that have been influencing and they may they, sometimes they are not able to see you mm-hmm. know and sometimes they are uh, individual uh, transitions and, and the partners are not able to support or, or to be there so never we will this is a decision that they take themselves and as Charlotte mentions you know for sure when when you come in a way you want both we want to understand where we are and what is possible to do and we we want to make it work and as we say sometimes maybe it doesn't work in the future but obviously we will be able to to respect each other mm-hmm. and to take care for each other we A family independently, you know, uh, we
1: break apart. What about you, Dr. Shell? Have there been situations where you have desperately wanted to take someone aside and go, you need to get out of this situation? (laughs)
3: I guess that's exactly the kind of thing we have to keep in check mm-hmm. and comes back to the impartiality. And I think, um, yeah, as Anna was saying, we're not there to give our opinion. Um, so we have to make sure that we're providing space for for both parties to really explore what they want and what feels best for them.
1: Um, as much as the desire might be, if it was your best friend, you'd be like, get out. Get out. That's, that, that's not the hat you're wearing in that situation. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. Okay, right. We've had n- a number of Masters questions on this. Um, I'd love to know from you, what do you wish you knew about your partner? before you got married. That's what we're going to be talking about after half past today. Some of the questions that sh- and issues that should be addressed before you tie the knot. And I'm curious to hear from our two couples therapists. What are some of the daily or regular practices that they see couples in healthy relationships doing? So what are things that we can proactively try, do, say, not do or say, to future-proof our relationship. Um, Raquel's saying, interesting topic. It, topic. it didn't work for me, but I'm glad we tried. At least I know I put the effort into making things work and I don't feel as guilty regarding my kids having to deal with separated parents. Um, that said, in hindsight, our therapist wasn't very good and I wish we'd pushed to find someone new. So I think that speaks to your point that exactly as you said, know, Charlotte. Both people need to feel Comfortable. If Mm -hmm. it feels like it's two against one or if it feels like I don't trust this person, that's going to be just another barrier. Um, No name on this message saying, do you need to report an abusive relationship? What about safeguarding?
3: Mm, yeah, it's something we have to think really carefully about. And we have to be really clear with both uh, members of the couple at the very beginning. So um, therapy is a is a private and a confidential space. Um, but the boundaries and the limits to that are if we have serious concerns about someone's safety. Mm. Um, if we do have serious concerns about safety, so something like abuse, then we need to really think kind of about uh, the best course of action in terms of involvement potentially involving other kind of services or agencies but doing that in a way that is um, safe and doesn't increase the risk to someone
1: thank you and thank you for raising that on the text line you can get in touch with us on 4001 you've got the arn play app you've got the whatsapp too what do you wish you'd known about your partner or the question you'd wish, wish you'd asked before you tied the knot we are going to be talking about everything from will there be a television in our bedroom to how many kids do you want if you are in a relationship and the ring could be on the finger or perhaps you just want to address some of these issues it's never too late talking couples therapy on the show this afternoon Joining us in studio to lift the lid on couples therapy, we've got couples therapists, Dr. Charlotte Cousins and Anna Maria Aranero, clinical psychologists at Sage Clinics. And it's so interesting to get everyone's take this afternoon on what you wish you knew about your partner before you married them. Let me know yours. We've had everything from their coping strategies to their mothers. um, And that's what we're going to address now. Some of the critical questions you should ask your partner before you marry them. So I'm going to read out the question and I'm going to ask our in-studio experts to expand on the insights that that question can, uh, can bring up. So question number one, have we discussed whether or not to have children? And if the answer is yes, who is going to be the primary caregiver? Dr. Charlotte, is that something that a lot of people just go, well, we're going to get married and we're going to have kids, right? And then that's not bit of a a bit of a surprise down the line potentially
3: Mm, absolutely so I think it's really really important to make sure that you're both on the same page in terms of wanting to have children and as you say about what are the expectations of who will be the caregiver what happens in terms of going back to work but also something that I think couples don't often prepare for is that someone might change their mind And that's okay Um, but it's a
1: difficult dynamic for them to manage. Very, very, I mean the number of relationships that I've seen fall apart where they, she often thought that they were on the path to marriage and kids and then for him to go hmm that's not really what I had in mind and she basically into her mind he's stolen her fertile years and Mm -hmm. has, has dashed her hopes of being a mother. And um, it's very hard because when do you raise that on a first date? Is it so do you want kids? You know, I I don't know. But certainly before you get serious, these are some of the things you need to have an understanding on. Now, Mm -hmm. Anna, (laughs) one of the leading causes for divorce, money. Question number two, do we have a clear idea of each other's financial obligations and goals and do our ideas about spending and saving mesh? How often does money come up in couples therapy?
2: A lot, but exactly, once there is a problem, because I mean, finances is linked as well to security, to safety, you know, to, to, to dynamics in the, in the partnership. So, financials is very, very important. So, as sooner, as better, because I mean, exactly, it may be different. And, and these are patterns that they may change. And then we we can construct together. A, and this a comes
1: back to goal setting as well. You know mm, what exactly. what debt or what money are you bringing to the relationship? What's important to you to spend on? What are our savings and financial goals? What does financial success look to us like, as a as a couple? But um, it's again there's some nasty surprises down the line um we've kind of touched on this about how the household be maintained do we have agreement on who's going to manage the chores what about health history have we fully disclosed our health histories both physical and mental is that where you sit down the two of you and your doctor and go wow back in 2017 <laughs> <laughs> i had a turned ankle um but why why is that a crucial one do you think
3: I guess because we never know what's going to happen in the future. Um, So physical health conditions might kind of flare up or worsen. But the same with mental health. If we have a history of mental health difficulties, Mm -hmm. you know, something like anxiety or depression, we know we're much more likely to experience it again in the future, especially at times of change or transition, like having a family.
1: Now, this is a big one, and we're going to be talking about the love languages next week. Is my partner affectionate to the degree? That I expect mismatched expectations about how love is communicated and received. Anna, is this something that you've seen come up in clinic before?
2: Absolutely, particularly because exactly the moment the the, the, the couple gets together, I mean, they're surrounded by many different aspects that they can, you know. Uh, make them very happy but I mean over the time if I'm not able to to communicate or to or to be able to receive and understand my partner so emotional communication is very very important and this is one of the things that we don't get them <laughs> yeah. and and but it is going to cause a problem over the time mm. definitely and it
1: linked the next one which was you know can we comfortably and openly discuss our needs around intimacy our preferences and fears so a really crucial one which also links to will there be a television in the bedroom <laughs> I don't think my husband and I had this um, before we got married. I'll have to say we haven't got a TV in the bedroom. Has this come up in clinic before, Charlotte Cousins, about... You're nodding as if this is an obvious thing. Do people fall out about having a TV in the bedroom?
3: <laughs> no, not an obvious thing. But I guess it's, it's just a beautiful example, isn't it, of something that we might think is seemingly trivial. But sometimes we don't know that the other party has a really, really strong view about it. Mm-hmm. So it's just important to discuss all of these things kind of in detail so that if there are massive discrepancies, we can try and have an opportunity to resolve them and find a way forward
1: together. Other questions involve things like, do we like and respect each other's friends? Something that's come up on the text line is about, I wish I knew more about their family. Mother-in-laws have been particularly singled out. Um, There's not much you can do about a mother-in-law or father-in-law situation, but I guess you can be on the same page of, how will we deal with a situation with our families should it arise? Um, I love this question, Anna, and I wondered if you could speak to this. Are there some things that we are not prepared to give up? in the marriage, are non-negotiables. What are some of the common non-negotiables that, you, that you've heard from either married couples
2: or couples that are preparing to get married? So, uh, I mean, basically having kids. This is one of the main aspects. So they get together, they think it's going to be fine and maybe later we change our opinion and maybe it's more flexible I oh, no. I mean when you are strong uh, about uh, you know a particular aspect we we need to believe so Mm -hmm. we need to believe so let's say Um, so obviously I think it's very important to consider as well how flexible exactly maybe we can have this discrepancy discrepancy as um, different points of view but I mean are we able to really um, to to find a common ground or or to agree or to how we solve uh, problems. Yeah be on the same team exactly are we able to do sometimes it's more important, but with, definitely with someone have a very strong position and something, we, we would believe it, okay. believe that it's there, at least for that moment.
1: Dr. Charlotte Cousins, I wonder, and this has come up in a few conversations I've had recently and some things that I've listened to, about are we just not that realistic about long-term love anymore? You know, we look at social media and we see, you know, skipping through fields and oh, we've renewed our vows after 10 years and, you know, I've never been more in love. And then... We kind of go well, oh, that's not really the the case for me that that honeymoon period is exactly that it's a mm-hmm. it's a short it's a short term thing um what a, what about our expectations and and how can that discrepancy cause problems in when it comes to reality
3: mm, absolutely, and I think as you say, that honeymoon period often is just that and the honeymoon period is actually often much more about lust than about love Mm -hmm. so then we have a really unrealistic expectation that the honeymoon period is going to characterize the rest of our relationship Mm -hmm. and that's how we're going to be together Um, we often find it much more helpful to think about different seasons of our relationship and thinking about being in love so feeling in love with someone and loving someone and the two are different we hope that the two coexist, but the reality is that we know in, both, in most long-term relationships, hopefully the love sustains, and we will fall in and out of love with someone. And we just have to be realistic about that. We haven't touched on infidelity
1: on today's show, but I've already said to the ladies off air, that we will absolutely address this because it is something that's coming up in clinic and it's so many different aspects when it comes to couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Lastly, though, let's give our listeners some homework. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the daily or regular practices that you see couples doing or that you advise couples in healthy relationships to do. Anna, what comes to mind for you? What would you love everyone today to do, try, say or avoid to future-proof their marriage?
2: So I would recommend because I insist a lot about emotional communication to try very simple practice, I would say. And it's uh, helping as well for the more emotional intelligence, you know? right? Like uh, when instead of uh, presenting a claim like you are not calling me or you are not saying that, no, you go away, you never talk, and, you know, those absolute, with me. You never do this. Exactly. You always do that. Mm-hmm. So okay. Instead of going there, try to 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 think about the longing there you know and, and then express that like I mean I'm missing that connection when you are away mm-hmm. you know I feel that we're together no mm-hmm. that we're connected so that would be a very you know simple but not so simple <laughs> but I mean it requires some practice but, but in a way to it's hmm? self-awareness isn't it it's a, it's a lot of self-awareness What it, about you Charlotte cousins what would you love
1: to see people do try avoid?
3: Um, I think one of the things to do is sharing the positives as well. I think when lives are busy and hectic, couples don't have a lot of time to connect together and they often connect around the problems or their grievances and the things that they want to kind of moan about and like it really annoyed me when you did X, Y and Z or you stopped doing X, Y and Z and we forget to appreciate our, cu- um, our partner sorry, and compliment them mm-hmm. so try and keep a balance of recognising the strengths, recognising the positives alongside raising the things that you would like them to, to change and do differently.
1: Thank you so much both, really really fascinating to think about what maybe some of us should have done a few years ago and the questions we should have asked but also what's within our grasp and if we need it where that help is anna and dr charlotte thank you so so much speaking to us from sage clinics if you want details you can just send me the word couple i'd be very happy to connect you with them um if you are looking for some expert advice or perhaps we weren't able to get to your message today Now, a box and a balloon have been put on my desk, which is not party time. Apparently, I'm going to have a test in a couple of seconds because we're talking lung health this hour. Celebrated annually on September 25th, World Lung Day. But how well do we know what's going on in there and how to take care of them? Joining us now, Dr. Bassam Mahbub, head of the respiratory department at Rashid Hospital and professor of pulmonary allergy immunology. Dr. Bassam, how are you?
4: Hey, how are you?
1: I'm worried, to be honest. I'm being tested on live radio on my lung health, so I'm a little bit anxious. Did you but blow the balloon? I haven't yet. We're going to save it for the end. <laughs> I'm grateful we're not okay. doing a Facebook Live. Um, before we get to testing me, um, can we kind of start with a little bit of definitions around what our lungs are and their main function. And I know I don't want to be Captain Obvious on this, but I wondered if you'd come across any myths or misconceptions about what the general public understand about those lungs. What do we need to know, doctor?
4: Sure. So um, um, lungs are exactly two balloons. And their uh, job is to get the oxygen in and get the uh, carbon dioxide out. So you breathe in and you breathe out. So anything happen in that system, whether you have a brain problem, you will not be able to send those signals to breathe in. Mm-hmm. Whether you have a pipe wind problem like asthma or a COPD or emphysema, then you have a problem, or you have something in that balloon being stretched, and this is the lung fibrosis. So anything goes on from uh, from what I just said could affect your breathing. Now. Breathing is life. When we want to exaggerate, talking about something that it's wow, we say you took my breath away. <laughs> and we say that it's breathtaking because breathing is life. The first thing a baby comes out of the book is they cry, but they actually cry to take the deep breath. Mm-hmm. So the, the function of the lung is, uh, is just to get the oxygen and, and to get rid of the dioxide. Now, unfortunately, we inhale a lot of things. We inhale good things and we inhale bad things. And it just happens that as we get more modern and more industrialized, we, we inhale smoke, we inhale fumes, we inhale viruses, we inhale dust, and all these things that comes to the lung. And the lung, as good as it is vital, it's not that smart organ. Mm-hmm. It's actually just, I mean, it can it can be affected easily, and it can go into a fibrosis, which is the lung itself getting stiff and it's difficult to expand. So, this is in a nutshell what does the uh, lung do and what's a fibrosis mean. Dr. Bottom, I'm really
1: fascinated with breathing and breath. I've read a lot and listened to a lot of experts, and we're going to be talking about nose breathing in particular next week sure. um, with Rose Donovan. And I, I wondered if you feel like there's been any interesting developments or studies done that have kind of changed the way we as you know, modern people in 2023 think about breathing and how we breathe. What's interesting you right now?
4: So, uh, first thing, that you shouldn't be doing something that will insult your lungs. So uh, you shouldn't be smoking. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be around people who smoke. So this is a given. And then uh, pollution. So they've done a lung function for people who were in the high park. And then they've done the lung uh, function three hours. At the same time, people were on Oxford Street. And guess what? There was a difference in the lung function
5: mm-hmm. between
4: those people who were just exposed to car and traffic jam mm-hmm. and the pollution. There was a difference. So anything that you inhale that you're not supposed to inhale, it affects your lung. So, uh, so, so that's the first thing: this. you you shouldn't be uh, insulting your lung. So that's one. Two, exercises generally is good for heart, it's good for muscles, but it does not affect the lung directly. However, when you do exercise, you get your muscles to be smarter, mm-hmm. so they don't demand a lot of oxygen so good exercise makes your lung get less demands to the lungs so uh, it's a smart muscle so the same exercise instead of asking me for 10 liters of of, uh, of uh, oxygen uh, i am i do exercise regularly and then it will ask me for four or five liters so there will be less to lung. finally now the way we breathe mm-hmm. so some exercises are good. The only two exercises that happen to be good for the breathing are two that it's shown. Scientifically, it was yoga, swimming. Mm, interesting. These interesting. Yeah, these are the two things that it showed, at least scientifically, it improved your breathing capacity. So the, uh, the avid professional diver tends to have a higher lung capacity than the normal ones, even the runners and all this material. So swimming and diving improves it. But also yoga and especially breathing the right way. So you were talking about the nosing through the nose because naturally we should be breathing through the nose. We should be closing the mouth and breathing through the nose. This is uh, how we were engineered. However, if you have energy or it is a block or something like that, or we have a sleep apnea, mm-hmm. then we tend to open the mouth. So breathing through the nose is the right way in fact if you go to a yoga uh, place this is what they will teach you the first thing is to breathe correctly and breathe through the nose
1: dr bassam can i ask and when we're thinking about lung capacity how accurate an indicator is that on our overall health or even how long we're going to live
4: okay so uh, that's a very good question so we we ask people to inhale for three, for six seconds and then we get reading from the first second and breathing from the sixth second so and because most of these readings were done in white caucasians so you cannot tell exactly whether those numbers will be exactly uh, uh, uh describing your 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 lung capacity exactly but i would say roughly roughly we give an um, we give Biological age and we give a lung age. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're a smoker or if you have a bad asthma, then your lung age will be 60, and you're only 40 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But as as these diseases gets worse, the vital capacity gets less, and the life expectancy gets shorter as well. But it's not that accurate. It's okay. just a uh, and it's just a rough estimation.
1: Dr. Bassam, can I ask you, as head of the respiratory department at Rashid Hospital, how concerned are you about vaping, especially in the young?
4: i oh, very concerned, extremely concerned, because uh, it's bad for the lung. Uh, lots of youngsters are using it. And because it's it's kind of very difficult to detect it, even in the plane or something like that, and mm-hmm. it's like a stick, you can put it. We find also a lot of ladies I and mean, sorry of young girls are smoking, and these are the things that will get you into trouble later on. It starts by batsmen, but now they have flavors. And by the way, these flavors are chemical; they're not natural. Mm-hmm. So if you uh, if you are vaping uh, strawberry, it's no way. Probably
1: it's not one of your five a day
4: <laughs> yeah so it is an ester chemical that we prepare that they prepare it in the lab so it gives you that feeling and it gives you the copd which is the chronic obstructive mind. but also since we're talking about the demand fibrosis it gives fibrosis for people after age of 60 and this is a very nasty disease where one gets stiff and you don't do anything and it starts very insinuously after the age of so I'm concerned about vaping because when we did the prevalence of the smokers, uh, excuse me, like 10 years ago, it was 25%. And at that time, there were only cigarettes and shisha. But now we have cigarettes, shisha, vaping, uh, midwife. So I think if we do the actual thing, maybe the numbers will be soaring to 30 or 35%. And then going to be a burden.
1: It is. Um, Dr. Bassam, there is a balloon challenge going around, which is bringing more awareness to pulmonary fibrosis. Before you challenge me, what is pulmonary fibrosis?
4: So pulmonary fibrosis is this disease. So if you uh, are, and you will know this now when you start blowing uh, the uh, balloon. So if that balloon is a stiff for some reason, it won't be expanding. It won't blow up. Easily, and this is exactly what happens during the uh, fibrosis. So, naturally, when you take a deep breath, so this whole lung, this whole balloon expands to the full to get the maximum oxygen that you can get. But imagine you can do only this and you stop in the middle because your lung is very stiff. Okay. So, this is the fibrosis, and it happens for a different reasons. Sometimes it just happens idiopathic, which means without. Reason, there are genetic factors, but many, 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 many times it is related to something that we were exposed to, smoking, having birds, being around industrial uh, pollution, and it makes a lot of problems. So now we have some medications uh, from Boringa and from other companies that they help reduce the speed of the land loss. Okay. but this is what is lung fibrosis good All luck right. with uh, blowing what? that okay balloon. so
1: tell me what i'm doing i've got a balloon it looks like a, p- a party balloon in front of me am i simply just gonna try and blow it up is that is this is this so, my test blow it up okay i'm gonna till do it, it now you can talk till,
4: while I try. it's perfect. so okay so let me see i'll start counting two three four five six seven eight nine ten does it go below that uh, more than that
1: i'm my balloon had a hole in it but i did blow it up
4: (laughs) oh (laughs) congratulations excellent you don't have a line fibro
1: i don't well i think and i I think a big part of it is and i I was really interested to hear you say about swimming because i was a swimmer as a kid and my daughter's asthmatic and one of the things that the doctor suggested was more swimming so it's really interesting to think about that there are some things that are within our control to boost our lung health but i'm feeling reassured dr bassan thank you so much for your time today Really, Take really care. appreciate it. Um, and if anyone wants your details, you can more more than welcome to send me the word lung, and I will send you the contact details of Dr. Batam Makbu, the head of respiratory department at Rashid Hospital.
0: This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis.
1: Talking health right now, and yeah, coughs and sneezes spread diseases. But when is it a common cold, and when is it influenza? Uh, now, it was interestingly, uh, we had record numbers of flu last year. Could that be the case for this upcoming season? Finding out now with Dr. Marilyn Rabi Karam, consultant, clinical immunologist, um, expert in all things allergy at the Saudi German Hospital here in Dubai. How are you feeling? I'm good. How are you? (laughs) So relieved. I feel fine. I'm a little bit congested. But my goodness, people are dropping like flies right now. So we did see a big respiratory virus season last year. Dr. Marilyn, should we be worried about another difficult season, 2023? Well, unfortunately, I think we should.
6: Um, And the CDC actually um, is expecting the same as last year. Last year was the second most worst flu season um, that we've had. Whatever. Forever, yeah. Um, The worst one was in 2014 and 15, with a rate of like having for every 100,000 person, you have 10 in the hospital. So for last year, it was nine for every 100,000. And that's comparing like to one or two
1: before the pandemic. Well, it's interesting to think about that pandemic piece, because when COVID was at its highest, flu was record lows because of obviously the measures we put in place in terms of hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing.
6: Absolutely, that's one factor. But there's also a different factor involving the immune system as well. So um, during COVID, our immune system was not being exposed to these new viruses. The flu flu virus mutates every year, like there's tiny little changes in the DNA and RNA structure. Um, So what happens if the immune system was away or on vacation for these two years, and all of a sudden you're exposed again to these um, a bit more different viruses. Mm -hmm. um, And hence, you know, you're not used to fighting these viruses. And this is why um,
1: we're getting a bit more severe symptoms. Can we talk about what the flu is? Because I feel like the words kind of lost a bit of meaning and is used quite interchangeably with having a bit of a heavy cold. Now, my dad is not a doctor. He's a quantity surveyor. Um, (laughs) But his test for us growing up and we were like, I've got the flu. He would joke about putting a ten-pound note next to our bed, and he's like, "If it's a cold, you'll get up and get the money. If it's the flu, you couldn't care less."
6: Oh, he—he's he, got a point right there. So, um, so there's several different viruses that can give you the symptoms of flu, right, which are fever, body aches, um, congestion. Um, so, the common colds include viruses like rhinovirus, adenoviruses, even the seasonal coronavirus, which is different than the COVID nineteen. Um, so common colds are usually milder. Um, you get lower fever, lower temperatures, um, and you don't get the severe myalgias, or, which is basically the body aches. Um, but clinically, when you have a patient in your clinic, the symptoms can be very, very similar. Um, so that's why it's extremely important to test uh, making the difference. You know, you need to make the difference between the common colds versus the more serious viruses such as the influenza, which is the flu,
1: um, RSV, and the COVID nineteen. So, when we're talking about treating flu, are we really, and much the same as COVID, are we really just treating the symptoms and what an individual might be struggling with?
6: We are, but see, see, we want to identify people who are at high risk of complication, um, such as elderly and and people younger than two years, pregnant ladies, um, people who have chronic. Um, Conditions such as heart, kidney, liver diseases. So we do want to identify those because they are at risk of complications. So when we're treating really the the flu, we're just doing supportive care, Mm -hmm. meaning just rest, um, increase your water intake, um, um, some you know acetaminophen or ibuprofen for your symptoms. Um, but there is also antivirals, which we can give um, early on in the um, illness. So that's a very important point because the, we have a window
1: to start this antiviral. Joining us in the studio, consultant, clinical immunologist and allergy expert, Dr. Marilyn Rabi Karam from the Saudi German Hospital. Kelly's been in touch on 4001 saying, when should you take Tamiflu? So in, what does it do and at what stage is it the most effective? So, atomic flu is the antiviral, um, and again,
6: this is something that we usually give early on, so within the first 48 to 72 hours. And it actually uh, shortens the duration of the symptoms and kind of just decreases its intensity. We usually give it to patients who are at high risk of complication, not just everyone.
1: And is,
6: I know the name is
1: Tamiflu, <laughs> but is it only effective influenza or could you take it for a heavy cold? Uh, no, we usually give it just for influenza. So here's my question to you. Yeah. As an immunologist, when you start to feel a little bit under the weather and you know you've been around people, as I'm sure you are all the time, who are struggling with heavy head cold, maybe influenza, how do you start to supercharge your immune system? Or what are you doing on a daily, regular basis to make sure you're fighting fit?
6: So obviously, you know, there is no magic pill for the immune system, unfortunately, but it's all about, you know, having a very healthy lifestyle and increasing your antioxidants in your diet. Um, and the most important thing when it comes to the flu is vaccination. So you do need to get those vaccines. Um, it does not, so the, the the pushback that I get from patients sometimes, oh, I got the flu vaccine and I still got the flu. Well, it does not prevent the flu. Um, Overall, it prevents the severe complicated flu. So you might still get sick,
1: but you won't end up in the hospital when you get your um, vaccine. So who and when should we get the flu vaccine? We're September now. Um, Are we on the kind of the, the cusp of getting down to the clinic? We are actually and we're a bit late.
6: So um, usually, um, prior to the pandemic, the peak flu season was January, February. Mm. One of the reasons why we had a bad season last year was the peak was in November. So um, we really need to get vaccinated early because it takes around five to six weeks for the vaccine to start working. So it's not like you get vaccinated and you're protected the next day. So the sooner the better. So we should
1: all by now get our flu vaccines. When we're talking about kids in particular, maybe getting the flu vaccine for the first time, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Absolutely. So when it's um,
6: everyone can get the flu vaccine six months onward, the first time is usually two doses. So you get it um, and separated by a month. So you get your first shot and then a second shot in one month. Okay.
1: What about reactions to that vaccine? Is, is it possible that you can get a little bit of a, a microdose and feel a bit rubbish for a day or two?
6: Absolutely, because, you know, what, what the vaccine's um, job is is to stimulate your immune system and give you this inflammatory response. So when you do get those symptoms, it means that it's actually working. Um, so you might, it's not, you're not getting sick from the flu vaccine. You're not getting flu from the vaccine, but you're just getting the normal immune
1: reaction. I just want to come back to the, that feeling when you're getting sick. And I was told by a functional medicine doctor a few years ago, and she's like, you need to take buffered vitamin C to what she called bowel tolerance, which right. was basically before your tummy gets upset. And then lots of elderberry syrup, all the fluids you're mentioning there. Anything else that you've got in your, in your kind of cupboard? You,
6: go on. Well, not really well, that's when you go there oh, I know I know I know <laughs> it's like you know so you're opening really kind of worms when you're going in there and talking about function medicine and all that microbiota and the gut um, mm-hmm. flora. Um, there is lots of and lots of research going on there um, I'm sure at some point in the future we get we'll get there where we'll have a you know
1: something to eat or something to take that may prevent infections. But not yet. In the meantime, though, common sensible practices of hand washing. Hand
6: washing, distancing. You know, viruses um, get around by nasal secretions. So when you get in touch with large or small um, secretions, whether it's a sneeze or indirectly on surfaces. So just washing your hands, avoid touching your face when you're out. Um, And, you know, um, take your distance when someone is sick. You don't really
1: have to visit that friend who's sick. So... Leave something on the doorstep. Absolutely. Dr. Marilyn, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your time, especially given how busy we are now as we come into flu season. You can find Dr. Marilyn Rabi Karam, consultant, clinical immunologist and allergy expert at the Saudi German Hospital here in Dubai.
0: This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
1: Studies have shown that if you change career, change path in your 30s and 40s, that it gives you a bit of a new lease on life. So that's what we're exploring this afternoon. We do hear a lot of people changing their careers, pivoting, to borrow a pandemic phrase. But I'm kind of interested by this story, going from banking to farming. That's exactly what our next guest did now. Joining us, Sotit Thangi. he's uh, here without his brother. They are here. The company is two brothers. How are you, sir?
5: Good, good. Good afternoon, Helen, Thank you.
1: Thank you. I'm so interested in your story, but let's go back and hear where it all began. Why did you and your brother first go into the banking space? What attracted you to that industry?
5: So we are sons of farmers born in a rural village in India and are Parents thought it's best we pursue other careers because farming is not economically sustainable in India, nor is it socially respectable. So they put us in a boarding school in Pune, which is a city near my village. And we took our education. I completed my masters along with my brother, and we got to working with you know great MNC banks, and mm-hmm. that's what you know that that's how it shaped out.
1: That's so the the idea was about what when you we want our sons to be in a you know so called professional career space that. Did happen for a while.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it did happen for a while. We worked for I think eight, ten years in the banking space. Yeah.
1: Tell us about what we need to know about you and your life in banking that led you to leaving it. What was what was it like in that environment?
5: So it was a very professional environment. I was working with one of the largest banks in the world called Citibank. And I got exposed to roaming around the world and working with the best of minds in the banking sector. But you know, something uh, kept me kind of wanting for more and did not really uh, give me satisfaction of doing what I was doing and kept me thinking on what I should be doing in life.
1: A lot of people feel that way, to be honest, I'm very lucky that I enjoy my job. But the more people I meet, the more (laughs) I realize that's actually quite unusual. Um, However, many people just think that this is all that you know, is out there, especially when you are in a a sector such as that, where you are compensated well, where there are travel opportunities, and it must tick an awful lot of boxes in terms of being deemed successful. Was there a tipping point where you think, do you know what, this is fine, but it's not sustainable? Was there a bit of a light bulb moment when it came to leaving?
5: Yeah, I was in. Uh, I think I was in Manhattan uh, 10 years back and I was on top of the Empire State Building viewing the entire skyline and I was not kind of enjoying it. The only thought on my mind was, you know, what's happening back at my farm and how my livestock doing and my mind was stuck in my farm. And that's when I realized that, you know, I'm meant to be on the farm rather than a city and amongst high rises.
1: So what did you do next?
5: So mustered the courage and uh, just quit the job and went back to the village and the farm life.
1: Okay. What did the parents say in that case?
5: Oh, they were they were furious. They were angry that they didn't. And they told us, this is not why we educated you in a good university and school and a city to come back to farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason they kept us out of the village was that we don't come back to farming ever in our life. So they were not really happy with that decision.
1: It's It makes me think of a... a wonderful company here called Boone coffee and this is an ethiopian coffee coffee brand and that was exactly you know we are going to put you through university we are well, you know you are going to be and she was working in washington dc and, and it was the call of the coffee and wow. now it's like well that's kind of why we wanted you out of the village but now you're <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it must be in must be in your blood I mean, tell us a little bit about growing up on the farm what were your, some of your fondest memories that you think have really imprinted that love of life on you
5: so I remember I, we, we have an old house which is built as per tradition. It's a stone mud wood house uh, close to a hundred year old and I grew up in that and I remember we had cows and bulls and buffaloes in front of our house and the farmland just started from there. So I grew up to you know hens and uh, cows mooing and fresh milk and being amongst very simple people in the village uh, who talked about simple things, uh, being in nature, being barefoot on the soil, up climbing up trees and swimming in wells and this was uh, a lovely environment we grew up in mm,
1: sounds it sounds idyllic if it isn't interesting because some people would have that experience to go i want to reject that i want the big city and you had a taste of that and it was the the farm that brought you back we're going to be finding about what happened next what is on the farm Of two brothers joining us in the studio. So we've got such a deep, if you've got any questions about that pivot, or maybe you've shared, maybe you've had a similar experience, maybe you have changed your career and maybe gone against the wishes of your parents, let us know your story on 4001. You've got the ARN Play app. We're going to be talking produce next and what that banking education has brought to the family farm. In studio now, Sachidu Tanji has been one of the men behind two brothers, having gone into banking and then back to the family farm, putting a different twist on what farming life can be like in 2023. Tell us a little bit about what the farm looks like now. Can you you take us there? Can you paint us a picture?
5: So when I started, it was a monoculture sugarcane farm. But when we got to know about uh, practices that are sustainable, we converted the farm to a food forest. So it's a veritable food forest. When you walk in, there are close to a 16 varieties of fruits. There's mango, there's sapota, coconut, uh, there's apple, and there are many more. And uh, in between the trees, we have, you know, tubers and some little millets and flowers growing inside. So uh, it's just to replicate a natural food habitat on the farm.
1: Wow. And how... Trying to think how to phrase this. How has the work and the education that you have done outside of farming that you have brought back to the family impacted? I'm not just talking about the bottom line of the farm, but also the surrounding area and, and, and workers that are there.
5: So, uh, the experience in marketing and in, in, in working in a corporate uh, helped us tremendously because while we run the farm as farmers and run it organically. Uh, we also need to sell the produce at the right price, and the marketing and corporate knowledge that I got while working with Citi and the other banks helped us to uh, make it a sustainable economic venture that now hands holds over 2,000 farmers across India.
1: Right, let's talk produce and let's talk where you are shipping to. Tell us a little bit about the offering.
5: Uh, so, we have uh, produced like there's cultured ghee made the traditional way, uh, It has a long history in India where you make ghee by culturing milk with curds and churning curds to get white butter and then melting that white butter to get ghee. We have jaggery, which is a traditional uh, sweet kind of a thing made with sugarcane. We have pickles, turmeric, uh, you know, so gulkan, the rose uh, extract that's used as a sweetener and a coolant for your body. So, all these. Uh, Foods that have a traditional knowledge and which my grandmother made and which I had been seeing and eating while growing up. So those are the foods that we recommend and we kind of make as a company now.
1: And globally, 50 countries, I believe.
5: So it started off with somebody writing to us from US and asking us for our products in the US and figuring out that we were doing it the right way. Uh There was no ambition to go global, but uh, to serve him because he loved what we were doing, we kind of got into sending the produce to him and then word of mouth spread and I think in five years we have uh, a customer base across fifty three countries for a small farm it's 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 a, it's a good number to it's have amazing. and' happy to serve them um,
1: you um you're obviously here in the u a now you 're going on to the u s to to meet people over there um I wanted to ask you about a typical day. Um, you're maybe not a typical farmer, but tell us a little bit about what that routine looks like when you are back on the land.
5: So you get up very early, you get up, you know, as the natural cycles are, I'm, I'm up by around 5, 5.30 on the farm in the morning. And then it's natural to go to the cow shed where the cows are there and you help in the activities of cleaning the cow shed and help in milking of the cows and come back to have a healthy breakfast that also consists of, you know, freshly churned white butter and then uh, go on to the main farmland and the food forest to uh, kind of uh, do some of the other work and tasks that's there on the farm.
1: Wow. We've had messages going, I wish I could muster the courage just to leave work and be a farmer. But family with two kids, I'm not sure how I go about doing this. What about your ambitions for your children? It was your parents' dream for you to go to boarding school, work professionally, and you, you've, you've come back to you know, come back to the land. Do you think your girls would get involved in the future?
5: Oh, I have two daughters and Ajinkya has a daughter and a son. Uh, we have been taking them to the farms every weekend and uh, nothing is forced. I mean, we pursued what we loved and uh, that was farming. I have always told them that pursue what you love and what you think will give you joy. And irrespective of whatever it is, though, if the farm is pretty well settled now, it doesn't mean you take on the farm. If it's dramatics and something is that you love pursuing, you should pursue it if it gives you joy.
1: So. Message from is saying, I'm a performing artist, soon launching my kids' life coaching business. These are definitely things my pharmacist parents didn't want for me. You just have to follow your calling. Um, lastly, what have some of your biggest lessons been? What do you wish you'd known when you you know, you turned your back on banking and, and went into farming? What have the the big lessons been over I the think, years? I think
5: um I think I should have mustered the courage to pursue passion and to pursue what I felt would give me happiness. It took a lot of time for me to make up my mind and go against all the social conditioning that had been uh, done to us uh, to not go to farming. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, would have been helpful for sure.
1: It's hard though, isn't it? We've got expectations of society, we've got expectations of our parents and we've got bills to pay. You know, I think there's so many factors that that come into play, but it sounds like you've Brought it together so, so beautifully. Um, where can we get your products here?
5: So in Dubai, we are available on uh, purefoods.ae, our partners in uh, Dubai who are helping us. And also at uh, Grandios, Almaya's and Choi uh and online on Noon and Amazon.
1: Can you imagine this was the case? I mean, think about your parents' ambitions when you were just a small boy to think that one day you'd be traveling the world, 40 days in the UAE, the US, and it's it's something
5: absolutely unimaginable. They thought I would travel the world, but as a IT professional or as a banker or, you know, some other modern profession, but as a farmer, absolutely not. It is unimaginable for any farmer to build a brand in a country like India and travel across the globe and have a customer base across the globe. So it's it's a pleasant surprise for them, I would say.
1: Well, thank you for coming in and telling your story. Thank you, Ellen, for inviting me. It's such a deep speaking to us from Two Brothers.